Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. This week, we bring you a story about tetrodotoxin. Undergraduates Reed Gudger and Chris Nolman delve into this neurotoxin that's found in several species of fish, and they ask, can it really create zombies? So here's episode two of Club Core, Fish, Mice, and Zombies. My name is Chris Nolman, and I'm here today in the sound booths of UNC Asheville with fellow student Reed Gudger. How are you doing today, Reed? I'm doing well. I'm excited to chat. Now, a couple of weeks ago, you started talking me up about a drug you're particularly interested in called tetrodotoxin. What can you tell me about it? Well, tetrodotoxin has been a part of human culture for centuries. Ancient Egyptian and Chinese cultures knew about it, and in their texts they mention animals called tetrodoans that are lethal when consumed. One animal is the blowfish, or pufferfish. Also, some salamanders and other kinds of fish have been known to have tetrodotoxin in their flesh as well. In Japan, specially trained chefs prepare pufferfish for this dish called fugu. When properly prepared, this dish has just enough tetrodotoxin in it that it will cause your mouth to tingle, but it doesn't have enough to kill you. It doesn't sound too bad. Has anyone ever been hurt eating this dish? Well, yeah, actually. Before it was really regulated in Japan, people were succumbing to the poison all the time. In fact, a Japanese emperor once banned his army from eating fugu in fear that he might lose some of his soldiers to the toxin. Nowadays, only about 30 people a year are significantly poisoned by eating fugu in Japan. The first case of a Westerner ever being poisoned by eating fugu was this man named Captain James Cook, who was a member of the British Navy in the 1700s. In 1774, he and his crew were in New Caledonia, which is in the South Pacific in between Fiji and Australia. They sampled some of the local fugu and then threw the rest of the fish to the pigs. Shortly after eating the fish, Captain Cook described an incredible weakness overcame him. He felt numb all over his body, the kind of tingly numbness that you get after your hands are freezing and then you expose it to a hot fire. He said that a feather felt like a quart of water in his hand, and when the crew woke up the next morning, they found the pigs were dead. That sounds like a terrifying experience. Why did the pigs die and not the people? Well, aside from the fact that the men were theoretically larger than the pigs and could take a higher dose, the crew probably threw the parts of the fish to the pigs that were more poisonous, like the liver, for instance. Is there any sort of treatment for this tetrodotoxin poisoning? As of now, no, there's no antidote for tetrodotoxin. The best way to help somebody who's going through this is to bring them to the hospital so that medical professionals can stabilize the person while their own liver breaks down the drug using hydrolytic enzymes. Other than that, there's really nothing we can do but wait. Hmm. So what got you interested in this toxin in the first place? Zombies. Zombies? Oh yeah. Like the shambling, decaying, walking dead kind of zombies or the fast, aggressive Resident Evil type zombies? Well, neither really. I'm talking more about the original zombies, the voodoo zombies, specifically the ones from Haiti where voodoo began. 
What does zombies have to do with tetrodotoxin? Well, back in the 1980s, there was this ethnobotanist named Wade Davis who visited Haiti and published this book about his experiences called The Serpent and the Rainbow. The serpent is the voodoo symbol for earth, and the rainbow is the symbol for heaven, so theoretically it contains everything in between. In this book, he details a story of a man named Clervis Narcissa, who had been working as a slave on a plantation in Haiti for two years prior. According to Davis, Narcissa was assaulted by a bokor, who is this sort of dark sorcerer of voodoo who administered this lethal powder to Narcissa by an abrasion in the skin. This powder contained lots of things like dried toad, remains of a deceased child, and you guessed it, pufferfish flesh. Narcissa was pronounced dead and was subsequently buried. Then, a few days later, the bokor and some of his lackeys dug up Narcissa and somehow revived the man. Then he was beaten and force-fed some other concoction containing the hallucinogenic Datura stramonium plant. This process made him forget his life before dying and turned him into this mindless slave to work on plantations for the rest of his days. Mm. I must admit, that's an absolutely insane story. I feel like we're just talking about one account, though, and personally, I don't think I can exactly buy this story. I mean, is that even possible? For all that we're able to tell, there's really no way to bring somebody back to life, no. Assuming Narcissa was telling anything close to the truth, the only other way that this could happen, then, is if he never actually died in the first place. But you said they pronounced him dead. They even buried him. Yeah, but that just means they thought he was dead. That doesn't mean he actually was. So do you mean that this concoction of a core mimicked death? Potentially, yeah. Maybe the powder paralyzed Narcissa, slowed down his respiratory rate so that it looked like he wasn't breathing, and maybe even slowed down his heart rate to make it seem like he was dead. Actually, using tetrodotoxin like this is not unheard of in popular culture. Movies like The A-Team and Captain America the Winter Soldier have used tetrodotoxin as a plot device, wherein one of the characters used it to fake their death only to come back later to shock the audience. Yeah, but we're not talking about the movies here. In the real world, can tetrodotoxin actually mimic death? And how would that work? So it's fairly well known that our nervous system uses electricity to send signals back and forth. On the cellular level, this is done by these things called ion channels. These are small proteins within the membrane of nerve cells that can open up and allow ions to flow in and out of the cells. One very important type of channel is the sodium ion channel. When this opens, sodium ions flood into the cell and allow it to fire, thereby sending the electrical signal. This is repeated along the length of the cell until it hits the end, where the neuron releases a neurotransmitter or causes a muscle to contract. Tetrodotoxin affects voltage-gated sodium ion channels. These are the ones that open once they sense an electrical shift in the membrane. These channels are made of three different parts. There's the alpha subunit and two beta subunits. Tetrodotoxin temporarily attaches to the alpha subunit and causes it to change its shape, thereby preventing it from allowing sodium ions to flow into the cell for as long as the tetrodotoxin is bound to it. This function of tetrodotoxin has actually been really useful for researchers for decades, allowing us to study the first sodium ion channels in the 1970s. So, basically, taking this drug makes my body incapable of moving my muscles or transmitting messages from my body to my brain, right? Essentially, yeah. Though it, it really doesn't affect all cells the same. 
for our purposes, there's two kinds of sodium ion channels. There's the ones that are sensitive to tetrodotoxin and the ones that aren't. Some conformational difference or a difference in affinity of some amino acid sequences of the sodium ion channels in the cardiac muscles and in the peripheral nervous system make them particularly resistant to tetrodotoxin. Though the axons of the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system are vulnerable to tetrodotoxin. So what you're saying is that some parts of the body can still function, even when there's tetrodotoxin running around in the blood? Essentially, yeah. Does this mean that this story by Wade Davis might be true then? Well, theoretically, if you could get just the right amount of tetrodotoxin into somebody so that they don't die, but are paralyzed and look dead, then at least the alleged resurrection might have a touch of validity to it, yes. Hmm. Does such a dose exist? Well, possibly. Like everything with drugs, the answer is a little complicated. In 2017, a study was published in the journal Toxins called Acute Oral Toxicity of Tetrodotoxin in Mice, Determination of Lethal Dose 50 and No Observed Adverse Effect Level. The aim of this study was to answer some unanswered questions that we have about tetrodotoxin dose. Essentially, we have had some missing information about tetrodotoxin for a while now. Some of our studies have been completed on mice by giving them injections into their veins or into their muscles or into the area around their stomach. What they hadn't studied was oral administration, which is the most common route of administration of tetrodotoxin in humans. In this study, they used an oral gavage technique to expose mice to tetrodotoxin. An oral gavage? You mean they fed tetrodotoxin to these mice? They inserted a tube through the mice's mouth that reached their stomach, yeah. Okay, well then what? Then they force-fed different groups of mice different doses of tetrodotoxin. These doses were 1,000, 500, 250, 125, 75, and 50 micrograms per kilogram by weight. The mice were then observed for a couple of hours for any signs of reaction. The researchers determined that the LD50, which is the dose at which 50% of the subjects die, for the mice was about 232 micrograms per kilogram by weight. The LD100 was 1,000 micrograms per kilogram by weight, and the dose where they saw no effect was 75 micrograms per kilogram by weight. In the higher doses, death was almost immediate. Hmm. So what do you think this data from this paper is really telling us? Well, previous studies have shown that an LD50 for mice was about 2 to 10, 10 to 10.7, and 12.5 to 16 micrograms per kilogram by weight for intravenous, intraperitoneal, and subcutaneous administration, respectively. So basically, the oral ingestion required about 1.5 to 3 times as much tetrodotoxin to produce the same effect as the other routes of administration. This kind of information is important when you realize that there really is no upper limit to the amount of tetrodotoxin that can be found in food in the European Union and the United States. In Japan, they have a limit to the amount of tetrodotoxin that can be found in food, which is 2 milligrams per kilogram by weight, but the Western world hasn't really decided on a limit yet. Research such as this can help determine what exactly the limit should be. Furthermore, tetrodotoxin has shown some promise in relieving cancer-related pain in those who are afflicted by that disease. This research can also help inform decisions around dose for these kinds of therapeutic uses. Okay, but tell me how this really affects our zombie story that we started with. 
Well, that comes down to that critical LD50 point. When the mice were given the 250 micrograms per kilogram by weight dose, some of them died, but about half of them lived. In those that died, the researchers saw a sort of paralysis in the mice's legs, with some violent spasms just before the mice died of asphyxiation since their pulmonary muscles could no longer function. However, in mice that did not die, a similar sort of paralysis took hold of them, they just didn't die. This could have been because of a simple, unique distribution of tetrodotoxin-resistant sodium ion channels in some vital places in the mice that lived, but I really can't say for sure why some of the mice lived and the others died. For the purposes of the story, however, it does suggest that there might be a dose unique to the individual that may cause paralysis to the extent at which the subject is unable to move and has significantly lowered respiratory rate but don't die. This is, of course, assuming that there is still enough oxygen in the blood and a strong enough heart rhythm to sustain life. In fact, there are several reported cases of tetrodotoxin poisoning wherein people experience some paralysis and respiratory troubles within 30 minutes of consuming the drug, but recovered with no signs of permanent damage after 24 hours. However, some also died within 7 to 8 hours, and these cases appeared in a hospital setting where doctors and nurses could use ventilators and other such equipment to keep the patients alive. If any of those people were buried like Narcissa was, I really can't say whether they would have survived or not. Hmm. So with everything you know about tetrodotoxin, do you think that Wade Davis might have stumbled upon a true bona fide zombie during his trip to Haiti? Well, you know, part of me really wants to say yes, but I'm going to have to say that it's very unlikely. There are just some parts of the story that can't be rectified. Even if the Bokor was somehow able to get the dose just right, causing Narcissa to become paralyzed and slowed his heart rate, the drug would have caused a flaccid paralysis, not the kind of rigor mortis-esque phenomenon that Davis reported in his book. Furthermore, I really doubt they would have been unable to detect any kind of pulse from the man, even in that poisoned state. And the biggest stretch of all would have come from the fact that Narcissa and other zombies were supposedly bewitched by this hallucinogenic deuterostromonium for years on end. This would have been really a marvel of pharmacology, considering the fact that the compounds found in deuterostromonium plant only last for about a few hours after being ingested. On top of all that, it is very unlikely that this bokor would have been able to accurately assess just how much tetrodotoxin was in the pufferfish flesh and then properly administered just the right amount to Narcissa so that he didn't kill the man. In fact, some of the samples that Davis brought back with him showed very low levels of tetrodotoxin in them. So, I mean, with all that, against my fantastical wishes to bring the myth to reality, I really don't think Wade Davis really did discover any legitimate specimens of the living dead while on his trip to Haiti. Well... <laughs> Regardless of the validity, the tales of zombies are not going to go away anytime soon. Thank you, Reed, so much for sharing so yeah. much with me and our listeners today. And uh, thank you, Dean Merritt, for helping us record today. Club Corps is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville. This episode was researched, scripted, and hosted by Reed Gudger and Chris Nolman as part of a 400-level neuropharmacology class project during fall 2018. Recording assistance was provided by Dean Merritt and sound engineering by me, Angel Kaur. Jessica Fox wrote our theme music. 
Thanks to Rosanna Garris for additional fact-checking, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including links to the research discussed in this episode, at clubcore.com slash podcast slash episode two. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me on all the socials at ClubCore. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can get it less wrong. Until next time.